And let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 John. Uh, We're going to be starting a new book. I'm excited about it. Uh, We're going to cover the first chapter uh, this morning. I titled this morning's message, The Marks of a True Christian. 1 John is one of these letters that is probably one, uh, it ranks right up there uh, at the top of my list of my favorite books. I love Romans. I love First John. I love all of God's Word, but there's particular books that have really ministered to me through the years, and First John is one of them. It's a book that I believe is very appropriate for the days that we're living in now. When I titled this, The Marks of a True Christian, uh, it's because that is a big question, I think, in the day and age we're living in. What is a Christian? What does a Christian really look like? How does a Christian really live? How can we, uh, how can we really tell what a Christian is? And I think these are good questions for us to be able to ask ourselves, to really examine our own walks before the Lord, not looking out trying to determine anything about anyone else, but what about me? We know that John, who wrote this letter, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, began as a disciple, became an apostle. He was also the writer of the Gospel of John. And then he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote also the book of Revelation. And so John really has a real instrumental part in the New Testament and, and really giving us some real, I believe, some important truths. Uh, John was one of the disciples in Scripture that is referred to as the beloved disciple. Even in the Gospel of John, I think it's five times in that Gospel where he's referred to as the beloved disciple. And he doesn't even insert his name. It's just that he's the beloved disciple. But he's also been thought of in, by some commentator as the apostle of love. Because he's, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And 1 John 3.16, this is how we perceive the love of God, that he laid down his life for us. John had this real, I believe, understanding of the love of God. He's referred to as that apostle of love. But even 1 John here has been referred to as a love letter. Because of how much is written in it, about the love of God and how that applies to those earmarks of what a a real Christian looks like. God's love. We know that John and his brother James and their father, they, they, they were fishermen. That's what they were by trade. That's what they did for a living until Jesus called them away to follow after Him. And, and they did. Jesus also referred to James and also to John as the sons of thunder. 
How'd you like to have that given to you? I mean, that tells us a little bit about maybe something about the personality of John and and even James, but about John, the, the sons of thunder. Not quite sure what all of that looked like, but I think he was probably just real quick just to jump on things and to, to try and sort things out. And, and so even thinking about First John here, the earmarks of what a believer is. It was Peter, James, and John who we might say were out of the twelve, part of that inner circle with Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus always took these three a little bit further. John was one of them. It was Peter, James, and John that were the eyewitnesses of the raising of Jairus' daughter. They were first-hand accounts, seeing Jesus perform that miracle. It was Peter, James, and also John that were there on that Mount of Transfiguration. They saw with their eyes the glorified Christ. We also know that it was these three that Jesus, when He went to the Garden of Gethsemane that night, He took them a little further into the garden. When he went over there and he knelt down and he began to pray, Peter, James, and John were a little bit further, a little bit closer to where the Lord was kneeling in his time of prayer. John was also one of the disciples who was very close to the foot of the cross. He was there as Jesus was being crucified. Remember those words that Jesus said when He was speaking to John about taking care of Mary. You know, and and Jesus just basically told John, take care of Mary. Take care of her. The occasion and the, the date of this letter... John was one of the apostles. He's actually one of the last living apostles. Uh, People have dated this book somewhere between 85, the early date, even up to 100 AD that John wrote this letter. He wrote it from the city of Ephesus. And we know that John, when he pinned by that revelation that God gave him of revelation, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And he was put there really for his testimony of Christ, for the Word of God and for his testimony. And he was, by the Roman emperor Domitian, he was exiled out to that island there where he spent some years, some time. God gave him that revelation that we have here, the last book of the Bible. But history tells us that John was released from that uh, imprisonment, if you want to call it, there on Patmos, and that he returned back to Ephesus, and he became and really was the bishop of Ephesus, which entailed him overseeing the church that was there in that city, as well as the surrounding churches that were there in Asia Minor. This letter, though, of 1 John, we also know that it was not written to a specific church. 
It wasn't written to a specific person. It was written to multiple churches. It was a circular letter. And many of the New Testament books were that way. Meaning that they didn't have the printing press where they all had a Bible in their hand. And so these letters were written and then they were passed on to a church. That church would read it to their congregation and they would pass it on to the next church. And it would make its delivery around to the various churches. And the Apostle John saw fit that this would be a letter or a type of letter that needed to be read amongst all the churches that were there in Asia Minor. The question that I started this morning with is what is a Christian? We know by definition it's a follower of Christ. The term Christian has been abused As a matter of fact, sometimes when you use that word Christian in defining yourself, sometimes we go, but do you really understand what I'm saying? Do you really understand what I mean when I call myself a Christian? And it's because we're living in days where people question, what is a Christian? I know a lot of Christians and they don't live any different than the ones that, that, that say they are. There, there's no different than them and people that don't believe. People get confused. But, but that definition, a follower of Christ, that actually defines it better, doesn't it? They're followers of Jesus Christ. They were first called Christians because they were followers of Jesus Christ. That's how the term came up. John was living in a day... Remember, this is only 60, 70 years after uh, the death of Jesus Christ. John was living in a day in a short period of time where there was already a lot of confusion that was coming into the church as to what is a Christian. There were a lot of cults, a lot of different religions that had risen up that were coming in with false doctrines and coming in with... Teachings that really were dropping the standard of what Christianity was meant to be. There was this moral laxity that was in the church in that time in John's day. It sounds like today, doesn't it? That moral laxity, and we're talking even within the church. And it was getting harder and harder to define a Christian. People were asking, well, what is a Christian? Uh, I believe that the dumbing down of God's Word is happening more and more in our day. People getting away from the Word of God. People saying it's not that important to take everybody all the way through the Word of God. People distorting these truths. And with that distortion and with that lack of teaching and with that not good understanding and foundational truths of God's Word, people begin to question, what is a Christian? How do we define a Christian? I believe that John, in these five chapters that we're going to be looking at over the next weeks, is going to make that very clear to us. You know, that whole question about once saved, always saved? I believe that we'll we'll see the answer to that as we go through that. That's one you've all asked. 
at some time in your life. But we're going to define, and I believe John is going to define that question, and he's going to make it very clear. John is one that doesn't pull any punches. He just lays it out there and says, this is what it is, and this is what it's not. And I think that's important for us to know. What will it do for us? Well, you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I am a Christian. And there's no doubt in my my mind that I am. And praise God if you have that confidence. But it'll also help you in being able to go through this letter because when you get asked the question, what is a Christian? How do I know what a Christian looks like? How he behaves? What he lives like? You're going to have the answer and it's found here in 1 John. The three... How many of you like tests? We've been out of school, most of us, for a long time. But we took tests all the time. What John does in this letter is he's going to give us a test. He's a matter of fact, he's going to give us three tests that we can take our own Christian walk and put it up against Scripture and be able to say, this gives me great confidence that I really am a child of God, that I am a Christian. Or... As I'm hearing some of the things that John is saying here, it would make me question and maybe make me consider, do I really know him? Do I really know him? Am I really saved? The three tests that John brings out in this letter, the first one that we're going to look at, and that's going to be this morning, is the test of obedience. As a Christian, we're called to be obedient to Jesus Christ, to the Word of God. That's the first test that he brings out, the first earmark, we might say, of what a true Christian is. The second test that we're going to take, and that won't be today, is the test of love. And I I believe it's an earmark of a true Christian. The third test that we're going to take is the test of truth. Jesus said, my word is truth. Jesus himself is truth. And when we examine ourselves in light of the truth of God's word, it reveals what our stance is on our doctrine, what we believe about Christ, whether or not we are saved or not saved. One of the... Other reasons why John wrote this letter, I think, can be found, and I believe it's a key verse. You could look at it. Chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, This verse says, These things I have written. What things is he talking about? All of the things prior to chapter 5, verse 13. Going all the way back to where we're starting today. These things I have written... To you who believe, he's talking about to Christians, in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? Are you looking at your Bibles? That you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Can a person know 100% sure where they're going when they die? According to what John says here, we can We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt if you were to die today where you're going to be. 
We can know. So don't ever follow the line when somebody says, well, you can't know that for sure. How do you know? How can you say with such confidence that you're going to go to heaven? John makes it very clear in these five chapters how we can know where we're going to go when we die. What is a true Christian? Some of the other reasons for John writing this letter... Uh, are found in the following verses. One of them is in chapter 1, verse 4. Look what he says again. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Now, I hope that everyone this morning has come into this place with a heart that is full of joy. That you are experiencing the joy of the Lord in your walk with Christ. That you, that, that, that you understand joy. And that you can have joy even when things are difficult in life. That it can't rob you of that joy. John writes of that in this first chapter. In chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, My little children... These things, here it is again, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Another reason why John wrote what he wrote in this letter. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Verse 26 of chapter 2, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Do you see the gist of what John is wanting to accomplish in the writing of this letter? These are the reasons why he wrote. This is the reason why he wanted this letter to be passed around to the various churches because these were important truths to grab hold of. These three main reasons uh, for John writing this letter, one of them being this moral laxity that I brought up. Uh, Morality within the church. Morality amongst those that say they're Christians, but their life is no witness and testimony of really what a Christian is. That's moral laxity. That moral laxity even came in the form of religion in the day. There was a group or a sect, a religious sect of the day called the Nicolaitans. It was a group that was operating at the time John wrote this letter. Some believe that the teaching of the Nicolaitans that it even involved and that they taught and that they engaged in ritual prostitution. That's under the name of religion. That was where people would go in and and have sex with these temple prostitutes, all in the name of religion, 
And it was something that they even taught that they believed that it was part of the Mosaic law. Now, when the Jews are hearing this, when people are hearing these things, and this is a dumbing down of Scripture, it's taking truth and distorting it and making it not be what it is, then people living in this environment, in this culture, in this day, and they were living amongst this, this is this Nicolaitan teaching that was amongst them. There were some of the Christians that were thinking, well, guys, is this what, you know, just like today, where we have false teaching, dumbed down teaching, we have people that are wondering, should Christians do this? Is this somehow we should live? Is this right or wrong? And the only, you know, the only way that we know what's right and wrong, God's Word. i got to go back to His Word. i got to know what it says. It, it makes it very clear. These Nicolaitans were living, it's believed, in this area of Ephesus where John was the bishop of Ephesus. They were living in and around the various churches there that were in Asia Minor. It's why John is writing this letter and then circulating it around. They were part of the problem. Scott shared from the book of Jude. And really the, uh, the crux of that letter of Jude was contending for the faith. But it talked about sexual immorality, even in that letter. And the, and the things that were there that were happening at the, at the time that Jude wrote this letter. Very straightforward and right to the point. But this was the issue that was happening. Nothing's changed, has it? I think we see a lot of that same stuff under different banners, under different names in the church today. Nothing's changed. It's just, it just has a different title. It's something else that they call it. John, when he had his revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, he was writing to the church of Pergamos. Pergamos was the compromising church. And this is what he said of this church. I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and then it says this, which thing I hate. Those are the words of Jesus, which things I hate. Why would God hate that? Because it distorts Him. It distorts the truth. It distorts that question, what is a Christian? They were doing this all under the banner of their religion. What they thought the Mosaic Law taught. How they were distorting it and and drawing the people into it. There was also, besides this moral laxity and the the, the teaching, the false teaching of the Nicolaitans, there was also the error concerning the person and the work of Christ that was attributed to a man that really brought about another doctrine that was called Gnosticism. That was also prevalent in the day. 
It was another compromise within the church. The other error that was needing to be corrected in this letter of John was defining the nature, as I've already said a number of times, of what a true Christian is. That's what we're going to be able to see as we go through uh, these five chapters. These Gnostics, which the name actually means the knowing ones. They were the knowing ones. Uh, they, they believed that they had this superior knowledge of God. You know, we might call them the intellects. You know, the Gnosticism, the Gnostics. Have you ever talked to somebody that's an intellectual? It really just puts a big high regard upon the knowledge that they have. And, and how much, uh, what you're sharing with me, yeah, but you don't really understand. You don't understand what I know, what I've come to learn. You see, Gnosticism was happening in the church. It's happening today in a different form, but it's there. This morning, we're going to look at this first chapter of 1 John. And it starts out by giving us the credentials for what we believe as Christians. This is, if you want to say, our Christian proclamation. I'm a Christian. Why am I a Christian? What message do I have for this world that defines me differently than any other religion that's in this world? What makes Christianity different from all of the world religions. It comes down to that proclamation of the message that we have. But we have to have it right. We have to be, it has to be according to truth. It, it, it has to be accurate. And it, and it has to be with a conviction that you know that it's true. And, and that's what makes our witness so powerful. That's what makes this gospel message so powerful. So what is the basis for our witness as a Christian? Why can we say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? Why can we say that Jesus Christ is my only hope of salvation? There is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved, Acts 4.12. Uh, what, you know, what are our credentials? What is our message? What is it that separates Jesus from all of the religions of the world? They all have leaders. They all have people that they're following after. What separates Jesus from all of the rest? It's all found in this proclamation of the Gospel. Look at your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard... I want you to underline a few things as we're going along, if you have something to write with. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard... Underline heard. Which we have seen. Underline seen. We've seen with our eyes, it says. Which we have looked upon. Underline that. 
And our hands have handled, underline that word handled, concerning the word of life. Notice that's capitalized there. The word of life. It says that the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen, here it is again, and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These first three verses are how John opens his letter because it's that proclamation of what we believe as Christians. It's what makes our message stand out from every other religion in the world. We have a Savior. We have a Savior that has been proven and seen beyond a shadow of a doubt that He's alive that He's living, that He's ascended up into heaven. These are all truths that we stand upon as Christians. It's what makes our message powerful. If Jesus is still in the tomb, our message is dead. If He's not alive today and He's still on the cross and hanging around your neck, it's dead. It's a dead religion. But our Savior is alive. Our Savior is the Word of life. Our Savior is light to this dark world. And and we've looked upon Him. We've seen Him. We've heard Him. We've handled Him. And notice in these first three verses that the words we and are. In other words, it's not just John speaking of himself here. He's speaking of even the other apostles, even though many of them have already been martyred for their faith. We've already seen, we've heard, we've handled him. He's alive. It's our proclamation. When it starts out, that which was from the beginning, and it almost takes your your, your thoughts back to what? Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? In the beginning... Or, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. But it also takes us back to the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 1. The same writer that's writing this letter wrote the Gospel of John. In John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word. Turn there if you're not there. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me ask you a question. Who is the Word? Very clear. Don't believe the New World Translation. New World Translation, the only one that ever holds that Bible in hand, we won't call it a Bible, but the other one that holds that book in hand is the Jehovah's Witnesses. They put an A in front of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, not was a God, as they teach. Verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. 
And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life. You know what I could insert there? Let's just do this. In Jesus was life. Do you see that? And the life was the light of men. And the light, Jesus is the light. He shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We're talking about John the Baptist. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of who? The light of Jesus Christ, that all through him might believe. John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus was in the world, and it tells us that the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own. He's speaking about the Jews. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then what does it say in verse 14? And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. John's writing this. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. That's why John has the credential. That's why John can sit and write this. I'm an eyewitness. I saw him. He taught us. We walked with him for three years. We heard his teaching. We saw him after he came out of that tomb. We stood there on the Mount of Olives when he ascended up into heaven until the clouds received him out of our sight. We're eyewitnesses of this. It's why all the apostles, with the exception here of John, that lived out a life and died a natural death, the other 11 disciples... And Matthias, even another one, history tells us they all died a martyr's death. They all died because they were 100% convinced of what this proclamation is saying right here. We've seen Him. We've heard Him. We've handled Him. The Word of Life. We're going to see when we look at that third test, the test of truth. That this is an important truth. It's an essential truth. As a matter of fact, if you deny this truth, I can tell you, based upon the Word of God, you cannot be saved. You are not saved. So, I mean, you can't judge me. You know, just because I don't believe Jesus is God, you can't judge me in that. Yes, I can. I can judge you by the Word of God. If you deny that Jesus is Christ, God in flesh, you cannot be a Christian according to what God's Word says. Even if all the world wants to say you don't have to believe that. And it sounds like everything sounds the same as what we believe. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they all have a Jesus. You know what I like to tell them when they come to my door? 
Yeah, but it's the Mormon Jesus. What do you mean the Mormon Jesus? It's the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. What do you mean the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? Yeah, because the Jehovah's Witness Jesus is a different Jesus than what I see in the Bible. The Mormon Jesus is a different Jesus. He's not the same. They deny that he's God in flesh. It's different. And and other religions in the world that want to call him a prophet and a good man. It's essential truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is God in flesh. John says in verse 2 that we bear witness. This bearing witness could also be that we, we testify. Uh, this word witness is actually a Greek word, martis. The word martis is where we get our English word martyr. They became witnesses or martyrs for what they believed. They testified of these things. And a martyr is someone who bears witness by his death. That's what a martyr is. They died for what they believed in. It's why Christians do that all over the whole world. When they're called to renounce their faith, I won't do it. Because it's essential for me to hold to this truth. Jesus Christ is God. And I will not deny that truth. The apostles and John being one of them, they declared. In a sense, they announced this gospel to the world. They reported, they published it to this world. They made a declaration. This statement that we read here in this first chapter, these first three verses... It's a declaration of what we believe as Christians. And there is no sidestepping from it. John says we bear witness in verse 2. In verse 3, he says we declare it. In verse 4, he says we write these things to you. John also makes reference to Jesus in these five chapters as being the Son of God. 21 times through these five chapters, he says Jesus is the Son of God. To a Jew, calling Jesus the Son of God was blasphemous. For you to even refer to him that way made him out to be equal with God himself. And that is blasphemy. But that's what they were saying. And that's what Jesus said of himself. They bear witness. They declare. They write these things. Jesus is the Son of God. He also speaks of God as being the Father 12 times in these five chapters. It didn't take long, as I already shared, for these false doctrines, this compromise, uh, this distortion of truth to begin to creep into the church, to start causing the confusion in the minds of the believers. 
But in our these first three verses, when John says, we have heard, I think that they're thinking back on those times as Jesus sat with them. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember those times that, they, that Jesus taught them the many times of teaching? And, and the, the times they said, we've never heard anyone speak like this. We've heard a lot of religious leaders, but we've never heard anyone speak like him. We've heard him. Uh, we've seen him. We're, we're, we're eyewitnesses of him. We've looked upon, we've beheld him. And, and to behold something means that it's not that you just see with your eyes, but it's that you're actually taking in what you're seeing. When you say they beheld him, as he walked through that door and he stood in their midst after the resurrection, and they beheld him and they looked upon him, they were taking in what they were seeing. This is Jesus Christ. He did, in fact, raise from the dead. Our hands have handled. Remember? Look. Look at my hands. Look at my side where they pierced me with a sword. And Thomas, you know, needing to touch, needing to see. Put your hand here, Thomas. Put it in my side and see. My Lord and my God. John is now writing this letter as if these truths were known and believed already. You see, these are foundational. The church was already standing upon these truths. And that's the way they're writing and that's the way they're speaking. As we go through this, these five chapters, we're going to see the word no. K-N-O-W. No. We're going to see that this word no is used in a couple of different Greek words as we go through this letter. Uh, It's important for us to know the difference between the two no's. and, And I'm bringing this up now because we're going to be getting into it shortly. And I'm going to make this distinction to you. But the word, one of the words in Greek is the word gnosko. Now this word no means... When a person takes in knowledge, uh, they, they recognize, they, they understand, or they're coming to understand. That's gnosko. I'm coming to understand these truths about Jesus Christ. I'm coming into this understanding and a greater understanding of who he is. There's another word in the Greek, it's oida. This word is a stronger form of the word no, and it actually is defined as this. Uh, when you are able to completely perceive something, it's divine knowledge. It's imparted knowledge, divine imparted knowledge to you and I. In other words, I have come to know that Jesus Christ is God. Divine knowledge in part. I didn't know that before I got born again. Before God opened my blinded eyes to see. I have come to know that He is my only hope of salvation. We're going to see as we go through 1 John, these two words 
that are used. Actually, gnosko is used 12 times in this letter, and the word oida is used 14 times in 1 John. Look at verse 4. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. I believe this is another key verse, especially here looking at chapter 1, that your joy may be full. Jesus said in John 17, 13, remember when he was lifting up that prayer, that long prayer to his Father, and he prayed for the disciples, and he prayed for you and I, and he says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy Jesus says, I want you to have my joy. That your joy would be full. That's what Jesus desires for us to have is a joy that is full. What's the opposite of a joy that's full? Is that a joy that's lacking? Is that a joy that is not experiencing the fullness of the joy of the Lord, of God's joy in our life? Verse 5 says, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light. And in Him is what? No darkness at all. Contrast. Light and darkness. Light and darkness. How do we define a Christian? With these words, light and darkness. John, out of all the apostles, had probably some really unique divine revelations given to him. John wrote here that, in verse 5, that God is light. Do you know that there's a whole lot in that? That just speaks about the very nature of who God is. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Remember when Jesus came into the world? It was dark. He came as light into this world. God is light. He also had this divine revelation, 1 John 4, 8. What's it say? God is what? Love. God is light. God is love. It doesn't say that God just loves people, though He does, but that God is love. In other words, His essence, who He is, His character, everything that makes up the very nature of God is love. And then thirdly, And John is the only one that that declares these three things. God is spirit. When was that said? In John's gospel, going back to the woman at the well. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Divine revelations. Let's look now at this test of obedience that I said we were going to take this morning. Verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. Look at your Bibles. 
Look how they all start off. If we say, underline those words, if we say, verse 6, verse 8, if we say, verse 8, verse 10, if we say, if you say you're a Christian, if you say you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then these are the things that should be characteristic of you. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, that Him is God, I could put it this way. If I say that I'm a Christian and I have fellowship with God, but I do what? I walk in darkness? What does John say? We lie and do not practice the truth. What issues were happening in the church? Moral laxity, the Nicolaitans and the Gnosticism and all the other things. Uh, if a person says that they're a Christian uh, but, and that they have fellowship with the living God, but they're walking in darkness, which is opposite of the light, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. Wow, that seems straightforward. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, I believe that fellowship, in the word is also communion here, to have communion with the living God, to have fellowship with the living God, means that we need to be walking in the light. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Which way is that? I believe first this way. We have to have fellowship at this level like this with God, communion with God, before you could ever have fellowship as a Christian with another Christian. Does that make sense? So he says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And I will make note of this, that, that His blood continues to cleanse you from all sin. It's an ongoing cleansing process of His blood being poured out over your sin every single day. Verse 8. And we're getting close. If we say that we have no sin. Underline that. He's saying no sin. You ever had somebody tell you that? I had somebody come up to me one time when I was out witnessing. Two of the guys that were out witnessing with me, they said, hey, Greg, come over here. we got a guy that wants to pray to receive the Lord. Sure. Yeah, I come over there and we get in a service, we're standing there, and I, because I wasn't part of the conversation, I began to ask the guy some questions. I said, can I just ask you a couple things before we pray? Sure. I said, well, first off, I just want to make, you know, I'm sure these guys talk to you and they said, but, you, you know, that you understand that you're a sinner? No. Wait, wait a second. So you, you don't think that you're a sinner? 
I don't really think of myself that way. I don't think I, I maybe you just not understand. Do, do you think that you uh, are, have sinned, or that you sin, and that, that you're sin? And, and you know what? He never could come to grips with that. I thought, how, how did they get him to the point where he wanted to pray? Well, you can get somebody to pray a sinner's prayer. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to heaven? I mean, but, but you've got to know that you're a sinner. If, there's, if, if you not believe you're a sinner, then there's no need for the cross. And so we never prayed. It was an eye-opener to these two brothers that went out witnessing. Don't be quick just to pray with somebody a sinner's prayer. They need to understand what they're doing. If we say that we have no sin, what do we do? We deceive ourselves. That guy was deceived. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, I'll just paraphrase and say, you can't be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that you're a sinner. Because if you don't believe you're a sinner, then you have no need of a Savior. And Jesus didn't need to come and die for you. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, verse 9, He is faithful, God is faithful, and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess means admit. If I'll admit my sin, if I'll admit my need for a Savior, if I'll admit that I I need forgiveness of sins, then God will be faithful to forgive. God will forgive. You say, is this for an unbeliever or a non-believer? I'll say both. If we have unconfessed sin that we're unwilling to admit before God, unwilling to bring before Him, one of the characteristics of a Christian is that when they sin, they want to get right. I'm convicted. I'm feeling uneasy. Life is not good. I know I'm walking in disobedience and I need to get things right. But I know that if I do get my heart right, God will forgive. I'll move forward with Him. It's that simple. But you see, what we're seeing here is really self-deception. Have you ever been in that? Have you ever been in a place of self-deception? I don't think I'm a sinner. I don't think I ever have sinned. And, and, and I don't know that I am really sinning right now. Don't believe the lie that you can reach a place of perfection as a Christian. And if I were to ask you, when's the last time you sinned? I can't even remember the last time I sinned. I can tell you when I sinned last. I've already probably sinned today. And I sinned yesterday and the day before. There's not a day that goes by in this life that I do not fall short of the perfection of Jesus Christ. And neither do you. You won't reach a state of perfection. That's why we need to have the continual cleansing of His blood over our lives day after day. Don't be deceived to say that we have no need of forgiveness anymore. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Ooh, wow. That's to the point. If you say that you have not sinned, then you make God a liar. Why? 
Why do you make God a liar by making that statement? If somebody makes that statement, why do they make God out to be a liar? Because God has already stated in His Word, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Ecclesiastes 7.20. There is not a just man on the earth who continually does good and sins not. Not one. So by me making a statement that I don't believe that I've sinned or that I, you know, you make God to be a liar. And then it says, and his word is not in us. In other words, you can't be a Christian. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, Thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.